The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys stories, experiences, and insights from the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. We've got a great show for you today. We've got one guest. His name is Terry Jastro. He's written a very provocative book. It's called The Trial of George W. Bush, and it's a novel. Now, a couple of things. One, Terry is an amazing guy. He's the winner of seven Emmy Awards in sports production and programming. He's not just a jack-of-all-trades. He is an expert actor, writer, director, producer, sports production guy with ABC for many, many years, and he's a really dynamic individual, and he's uh, taken it upon himself to write a novel about really the question of what if, what if we held leaders around the world to account for their actions? And it's a provocative, it's an interesting question. You know, folks, on Guys Guys Radio, I don't do politics. I didn't do anything on the election. I also don't do uh, the big issue right now with the pandemic. I don't get into a lot of that. And the reason is there's enough of that out there. You can get, I have my own opinions. I don't share them on the show. I want the show to bring in other people to bring in their opinions on different topics and ways to make your life better. I'm not here to argue about Trump and Biden. I'm not here to argue about mandates and vaccinations and all that stuff. I'm here to bring you new information for you to consider on your own. There's enough arguing going on (laughs) on all those other shows. So thank you for understanding that. So as part of that, when uh, the publicist came to me about this book, I was initially hesitant because I don't do politics and the name is very, very provocative. When you say the trial of George W. Bush, that means a former president of the United States is going on trial with an assumption of potential guilt for his actions. And I don't really like to go there. But I read the book. It's a novel. It's a what if. And it's about war and peace and accountability and how the world can come together and really hold our leaders to a, a higher standard of actions. Because now it seems like leaders from not just the United States, but anywhere around the world, they have pulled a lot of questionable moves over particularly the last 20 years. And since the Iraq war t- took place here in America, And I think we would all agree that uh, there hasn't been a lot of positives that we've gotten out of the Iraq war, no matter what side of the political fence you may sit on. You know, it cost a lot of money. The fighting continued all the way from Iraq, then into Afghanistan. It's been going on until the, the pullout in 2021. The death toll is in the hundreds of thousands and around the world and thousands for Americans. And you have to ask yourself, and it costs a ton of money, you have to ask yourself, is this, what was really going on here? Why were we so involved in this? And then, and, you know, on the flip side, it'd be very easy to point fingers and, fingers and say, 
well, no weapons of mass destruction. What the heck are we going over there chasing Saddam around? We kind of helped get him into his position to begin with. And there's so much there. But every once in a while, I ask myself, you know what? There's so much we don't know. And maybe when the leaders say, hey, we're doing some things to protect you, maybe they are. Maybe there is some information there that we're not aware of that changes the narrative. And if we understood that, we'd say, oh, my God. But we'd also say, I get it. I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm not saying that's the case with any big issue that we're dealing with right now. But I do know that there's been a lot of questionable decisions made from big leaders around the world, and they're not held accountable. And we don't know really all the information that they have to help them make the decisions that they make about war and peace and life and death and and spending a heck of a lot of taxpayer dollars marching around in foreign countries in questionable affairs, if you will. So, Guys Guys Radio, our special guest is Terry Jastro. Uh, I wanted to lay that out there because, again, I don't do politics. But in this one instance, I decided I'm going to take this this on because I think it's always good to push the envelope a little bit and to talk about some things. And you know what? The Iraq war was 20 years ago. So talking about it now is a little bit different. And the other thing is the world court, the international uh, criminal court out there, not every country around the world participates in it. So it's one more hurdle to holding leaders accountable for their actions because not all these big countries are involved. And I don't think the United States is even involved in it. So anyhow, Guys Guys Radio, my special guest, Terry Jastro. I hope you're off to a great start to 2022. I'm going to bring so many great guests on here. We're, we're up, uh, my 500th show is coming up in a couple of weeks. I've got a whole bunch of really cool people coming on the show. So I can't wait to get going with this year because it's going to be a good one. Hang in there. It's going to get better, I assure you. And right now, we're going to go into my interview with Terry Jastro on Guys Guys Radio. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio here at KCAA in Southern California, my worldwide podcast and YouTube channel. And right now we've got our very special guest for this week, a storied uh, published author, successful screenwriter, producer, playwright, seven-time Emmy winner for TV production, nominated 17 times. His name is Terry Jastro. He's written a book, a very provocative book called the Trial of George W. Bush. We're going to get into that in a moment. Terry's currently writing his next novel and his screenplay, Good Luck, Mr. Anthony, and stage play, Jane Fonda's War, are currently being considered for production in New York and L.A. Terry and his wife, actress Ann Archer, live in Southern California. He's done it all. He studied acting with Lee Strasberg, Milton Katselas, also uh, taught acting, appeared in numerous feature films, TV series, theater, directed L.A. stage premiere of a couple of white chicks sitting around talking, starring his wife, Ann Archer, and Elizabeth Ashley, directed, it just goes on and on and on and on. But for today's discussion, we're going to focus on two areas of Terry's storied career. One is this book, this provocative book, and it makes you really think. It's called The Trial of George W. Bush. And also, we're going to talk about Terry's background in sports production. He's worked on everything. Olympics, PGA, Super Bowls, you name it. So I've got a superstar with us today here on Guys Guys Radio, and I'm thrilled. So let's get started right now. Imagine a world where humanity has turned its collective attention to what can make the human condition better by holding political leaders responsible for 
their potentially corrupt actions? How would they play out? So my special guest, Terry Jastro on Guys Guys Radio. The name of the book is A Trial of George W. Bush. Welcome to the show, Terry. Hi, Robert. So this is a very thought-provoking novel. It contemplates the crossroads of war and peace, highlighting the repercussions of impunity versus consequence when a world leader's, uh, quote-unquote, illegal actions are held to account. So what happens here is in an imaginary world following 9-11 and following the Iraqi invasion, the international court of law takes George W. Bush and puts him on trial, basically. So let me let me start with this, Terry. The invasion of Iraq and the toppling of Saddam Hussein took place 20 years ago. And as important as that war was, what inspired you to write about it now? And what are the kind of archetypes and truths that are in this story that are still applicable today? Well, it's simple. If we allow uh, heads of states, uh, specifically in this case, the president of the United States, to wage a war that is deemed to be illegal, then we we doom society with more and more such wars. Eventually, uh, the 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 waging of wars that are determined to be illegal uh, 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 has to be paid for when it's done. Uh, And the Iraq war upon study uh, should never have been fought. Uh, this this came uh, as as people who were paying attention at those days, and most of us were. Uh, the 9-11, September 11, happened in 2001. George W. Bush was president of the United States. He, this single most important job was to bring Osama bin Laden to justice, who was in Afghanistan. After a year and a half of being unable to bring Osama bin Laden to justice, he turned his attention and the attention of the United States to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. If anything, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were each the enemy of each other. But Bush, because he's a very charismatic guy and a convincing guy, convinced the United States to, uh, to to approve his war with Iraq, so he then he then says that Saddam Hussein uh, has weapons of mass destruction. Uh, he and the, now it's also when I say Bush, I'm also talking about Cheney and Rumsfeld as well, his co-conspirators. But in international criminal law, the single person most responsible is held to 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 justice first. So that's why it's the trial of George W. Bush first. So after spending um, more than a year trying to find uh, weapons of mass destructions in in Iraq, we couldn't do it. They they then arrest Saddam Hussein and put him to death. And we stay in that war for eight years and five months, eight years and five months. So, you know, thousands of Americans were killed. Uh, Tens of thousands of Americans were wounded. Many, many still suffering from those wounds today. And we killed a million Iraqis in that war. Now, if it it was not not, uh, useful, and if it was waged illegally, do we allow those people who did it to to walk free? That becomes the essential beginning question. 
Right. Why did you choose to make this a novel? I know the power of this power of story is huge. Um, was that your driving uh, inspiration for this? Make it a make it a story instead of just laying out like you just laid out what you feel are the facts for this. Uh, others on the other side might add a bunch of uh, their own details on this, but I'm not going to debate you. As I mentioned earlier in my show, I don't take sides. I don't do politics on the show, but I found that this is a very um, uh, timely book because it's about um, the implications of holding our leaders accountable, not just America, but all around the world to make sure that they do the right thing for people. Because what seems to be happening nowadays, Terry, is that there's so much use of executive orders now. That war, was, what's interesting is that that was actually approved by Congress. And in today's day and age, and since then, there's been, I think what, what happened was when uh, Obama kind of got stymied on doing a lot of stuff, he started taking out the pen and doing executive orders. And then Trump trumped him on that, more executive orders. And now you got Biden doing mandates and things like that, executive orders. And it, now it seems like it's gone down to the state and the city level where our leaders are now, I'm in power and that's it. It's not this, our three branches of government have seemed to be, in my opinion, just as a citizen, diluted, like what happened? Well, decisions are just made, being made arbitrarily based on the beliefs of one individual. That's a big thing to unpack. Yeah, well, to, to answer the basic question is, um, uh, I wrote it as a novel set in the future uh, because first of all, it has a legal basis, which is an in international criminal law. There is no statute of limitations, meaning if a suspected criminal uh, uh, he is uh, liable for his crimes until the day he dies. So Bush is about 75 years old. So even to this day, as, a, as someone would read that novel, which when I wrote it is set in the future, because it hasn't happened, obviously, he is subject to arrest and trial until the day he dies. So in that sense, it's contemporary for another 10 or 15 years. I don't know how many more years George is going to live. I, I wish him only the best. But he is subject to be arrested and put on trial for this until the day he dies under international criminal law. So uh, I also, I was very careful from the beginning to uh, study international criminal law as distinct from uh, uh, our United States law. And uh, I wanted to tell the story from the beginning in a way that was balanced and honest. I wanted to set out the story, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, from Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, uh, Condoleezza Rice, etc., and let the reader, let the audience decide for themselves. So then at the end of the book, you, you would think either he is found guilty or innocent, and that's the very thing I didn't want to do. But something else, very unusual, happens, which ends the novel. Yeah, I think the uh, the reader gets the probably they get a uh, the ending that they want, not in the way they expect. Let's talk about George Bush a little bit because it's interesting that you guys go way back. You were friends. You played baseball against each other. You know each yeah. other. And I'm wondering how, you know, you take him on like this and with your statements like he could be arrested at any time. I mean, how's the relationship going these days, Terry? Well, I haven't seen him in a long time. I, I will tell you, George W. Bush is he's the most popular guy in any room. 
He's got a great personality. He's a great sense of humor. We, his daddy, uh, George H.W. Bush, was an oil man in Midland, Texas. At the same time, my daddy was. George is, uh, I think, a year or two older than I am. But we played him uh, uh, in, in Little League Baseball. I was on the Braves. He was on the Cubs. Uh, I'm too modest to say who won, but the Cubs lost. Okay? <laughs> and he was the catcher. And, uh, you know, you'd go up there the bat and Jack and, and Bush would give you all kinds of, you know, uh, he would he'd jaw with you the whole time. He was very playful. Uh, and then uh, I went to the University of Houston at a time when George uh, was a young oil man in uh, in Houston. And by just coincidence, we dated sisters. We, I, I had a, I was dating a girl, by, but both before, uh, all of this before we are, we both found the love of our lives. But I was uh, dating a girl by the name of Nancy and her sister's name was Beth and George was dating her. And the last time I saw George was at the uh, governor's office in, in Austin, in Texas. And Ann and I went in and um, uh, spent, he invited us in and we went in and we spent I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes talking and you know, he put his boots up on the table and, and uh, put his hands behind his head. And he said, uh, uh, he said, I, he just announced he was going to run for president. And he said, uh, he said, if, I, if Colin Powell would run for president, I wouldn't have to do it, but he's not going to do it. So I, I put my hat in the thing and run for president. And sure enough, he, uh, uh, he won. So, but he's a lot of fun in a in in those in a social uh, uh, connection. That's for sure. Have you heard from uh, him and any of uh, the uh, his inner circle or any uh, quote unquote government resources since the book came out? Because it used to have a different name. You changed it, right? It was Prisoner yeah, 043 I, or something. Yeah, I, I, I self published it in the beginning. Uh, you know, first time writers is terrific. I've done a lot of things in a lot of areas, but, you know, publishing a novel is, you know, I don't have to tell you, it's hugely uh, competitive and thus difficult. So I self-published it. It was originally called The Trial of Prisoner 043. George was our 40, was our, is our 43rd president. And happily, it caught the attention of, of uh, a, a, a publisher in New York. And uh, they contacted me and said, uh, listen, I think it's a really important book. It needs to be out there. The conversation needs to happen because, you know, wars should always be very carefully adjudicated by the by the public. And they said we would like for some revisions and maybe even change the title. And I said, count me in. And so Square One Publishers in New York, they're a great bunch of guys, smart, experienced. And so thus the new book. But that I, I, I've done it. That's the final time I can do it. I can't write it any better than that. That's for all time. And uh, and and I hope a lot of people read it because, uh, you, you know, I care about peace on Earth as opposed to war. And, uh, you know, we don't have to just stand by and let our elected officials do what they want. They have to be held accountable if the majority of people think that they've done the wrong thing. Now, when you look at the global stage and the international court system, there's a lot of authoritarian leaders that could be taken the task. You picked George Bush, uh, I guess, under part of the guise that uh, we have to be held to a America has to be held to a higher standard and, and we don't want this stuff happening at home. So you used this example. But if you look around, you know, uh, Putin annexing Crimea and a lot of the stuff's been done with China, you know, building those islands and everything. And there's just been a lot of kind of a 
questionable activities done by a lot of major countries around the world. So one is, what do you think about that? And secondly, why is it that some of these superpowers are not involved with the international court, criminal court? Uh, let me take the second part of the question first. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the International Criminal Court, the ICC, was created by the United Nations, which was created after World War II. When, when, when people of, of goodwill came, finally put an end to Adolf Hitler. And it created the United Nations built in, in, uh, in, in the United States uh, for, for all countries because the world was getting smaller. So uh, that there's, there was so much activity that was internationally and based not just nationally uh, uh, based. So uh, the, the people, uh, smart people of, of goodwill understood that henceforth there needed to be international, uh, 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 the International Criminal Court to take on those who may have committed international crimes, such as the United States invading Iraq. And so it had its plan. Eleanor Roosevelt and a number of really smart and able people supported it. So the International Criminal Court was uh, built in, in, in The Hague, in the Netherlands. And, and so it's for crimes that, of, of international status. So I think it was brilliantly conceived, much needed, and I'm very happy we have it. Why isn't the United States uh, a member of the International Criminal Court? Because there are some people that knew that, that there's every chance that uh, some activity in the United States may be uh, 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 breaking international laws, and they didn't want to be held accountable for it, which is exactly. hardly a good reason. That's right. I will tell you that, that uh, Bill, uh, Bill Clinton, at the end of his uh, uh, term, started the process for the United States to join. And one of the first things George W. Bush did when he got in office is to eliminate, you know, the, the hope of it. I hope the United States does become uh, a, a, a member of the International Criminal Court because I hope it's here to stay. And if the United States joins it, some of the others may as well. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, my very special guest is the multi-talented Terry Jastrow. We're talking about his novel, The Trial of George W. Bush. It's a very interesting, timely story. And uh, it also has a lot of lessons that we need to take away from this. So, you have some very compelling characters here, and I think you did a fantastic job writing the book. It's fast-paced. It's easy to digest, and I say that in a good way. You don't get bogged down, but you get into the legal uh, details in a nice way, and it keeps moving. You've got Condoleezza Rice, Richard Clark, Paul Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, uh, Donald Rumsfeld mentioned or taking the stand one or the other. How did you do your research on them and, and be make, make their story and your storytelling as true as possible to who these people were and how they actually feel and acted based on the situation? Uh, thank you for that question. <laughs> uh, I will tell you that uh, uh, I, I love research. I find it very interesting because there's a certain amount that one knows, but there's a mountain of things that one doesn't know. Uh, uh, and um, I, I I, I knew that this story particularly had to be rooted in the truth. 
if it were if there were a lot of false things and lies said, it was never going to get be taken seriously. Uh, so uh, I I became a student of international criminal law and international criminal law in comparison and contrast to U.S. law, uh, and then uh, uh, hired a lot of international criminal law experts attorneys, et cetera, to school me in it, uh, and even professors of international law. And then uh, I would have them actually read sections of the book and correct what was wrong. And it was really good because I, I had Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. I got I bet everybody on the scale because I want my audience to be not just Democrats or not just Republicans or whatever, but I wanted everybody to read it. And they had to believe that it was authentic, meaning both sides had to be advocated for equally and forcefully. So I just I just kept writing and writing and writing until I achieved that because I knew I could never publish it unless that had been done. Does that it, answer your question? It, it does uh, very well because you did a great job. I truly believe when uh, Condoleezza Rice was on the stand, the character, quote unquote, I, I felt like I was listening to her having seen her on TV so many times and getting familiar with her cadence and how she her uh, tone and everything. I think you did a fantastic job taking all of this on I'm, but have you heard from any of their people saying hey you no. got me wrong or hey, what are you doing no. or you hey, the prosecutor uh, remember what happened to him yeah no I, I will tell you speaking of Condoleezza Rice uh, I, I was also part of the answer to the last question is I was also really benefited because a lot of the major characters have written their own books mm -hmm. true so a lot of what I got about Condoleezza Rice came out of her book. And, you know, all, George, George had written a book. So uh, it was easy. It was easy. to. And then I, I knew some people who were associated with them and I was just able to get kind of collateral interest in them. And again, I knew I knew George uh, since we were, you know, preteens. So, uh, yeah, there's, it was just a lot of source material this uh, after all, it was it was a major war fought, so there was there was a lot to be found, and I'm glad I got most of it. You know, it was interesting as I read through the book, and you had both sides, the prosecution and the defense, and they had their strategies. But you know, uh, the the war crime thing when it's being prosecuted, you're nodding your head as you're reading, and then when you hear the defense, you're nodding your head and saying, "I kind of get that too." When throughout the process, from beginning to end of writing this book, did you have your point of view change it all by going through the process of writing the entire story and taking it on from both sides? Uh, the, the answer is yes, because I, I couldn't think of a way to advocate for the prosecution, the ICC attorneys, or the defense, Bush's attorneys, unless I was an advocate of their, an, an advocate of their position. So literally, when I was writing, the, you know, the, the 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 interrogation made by the prosecution, I was in their camp, <laughs> and same for the defense, uh, because I, I from the very beginning, uh, Robert, I I just felt that if this was a one way story. I, it was not anything I wanted to have. I, I, I didn't set out to, to, to excoriate Bush and find him guilty. I set it out 
for people to be aware of what happens with international uh, international criminal law, making people aware of the fact that there is international criminal law to do something in the future, to do whatever I could now to stop these wars, to advocate for peace over war. That's what propelled me to do it, even to this day. So I think for our listeners out there, you know, you hear the you hear the title of the book and it sounds like, oh, immediately, you know, Bush is guilty. But that's not the case. The way Terry approached the book is that what if what if our leaders were held accountable for some of the actions they make? And we know our leaders do the best they can. And sometimes there's two perspectives. You watch the presidential debates, you hear two sides of the story. And there's always two sides to a story. But things can happen and people can get hurt and people can die. So. Good job in putting the book together. Terry, what do you want people to take away who read, read this book and who are going to buy it? Uh, uh, first of all, is that elected officials should stand, uh, be responsible uh, and held accountable for what they do. They're, they're, not, uh, they don't, they're not absolved from law because of the president of the United States or vice president of the United States or secretary of state. No, they're held up to very specifically defined laws. And if those laws are broken and crimes are committed, they need to be held uh, uh, accountable for it, even if it's the biggest uh, 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 leaders of the biggest countries in the world, or especially leaders of the biggest countries in the world, because that's where the most damage can be made. So uh, I, I wanted to, to, but I didn't want, I knew that I couldn't be preachy about it or professorial about it because nobody would pay attention. Plus what, what I, I have no credentials necessarily to teach about international criminal law, but I'm, I'm a storyteller and a fairly good storyteller. So I just used my my passion for and interest in and ability to write such things, to set it out there in the universe in hopes that a lot of people read it, and it changed the, adds to and changes the narrative. And that's what we do here on Guys Guys Radio. We bring in new information from thought leaders. People are taking a stand, putting information out there. And then our listeners determine, hey, I, I get it. I buy into it. Or maybe not, but at least I heard a different, maybe it's a different point of view. Maybe it's reiterating their point of view. So thank you for that, Terry. But let's get on, if you don't mind. I want to talk about your career in sports, because Terry has one of the most storied careers in the world of sports from a production standpoint. He's worked on ABC Wild World or, Wide World of Sports, six Olympic Games, including opening and closing ceremonies, Winter Olympics, Olympics Summer Olympics, so many of Howard Cosell's broadcasts, uh, PGA Golf, Super Bowl 19, which I believe was the 49ers uh, in Stanford against the Dolphins, and um, just so much more. And also he did uh, produce uh, hot couture passion, uh, uh, fashion shows in France. So just an amazing career you have. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get started in television? And what was the big break that led you to become uh, the youngest sports producer ever at ABC? So uh, uh, Byron Nelson, the legendary commentator Byron Nelson, was the co-host of ABC's Golf along with Chris Schenkel. OK, so Byron Nelson has a nephew by the name of Kenny Newell, who is on the University of Houston golf team as well. So one day in the spring, Kenny Newell uh, came down the the, uh, the 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 golf teams, you know, where we live and said, hey, uh, the ABC Sports is looking for spotters and scores at the at the at the uh, Houston Open uh, this week. Anybody want to do it? And everybody said no. 
And I said, well, ABC Sports, spanning the globe to bring a constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory. I said, I'll do it. Uh, and so uh, they, I, they, they, I came out and I worked for Keith Jackson. Yeah, All sure. right. I, came, I was on the 16th hole at Champions in uh, in Houston, and I was worked for Keith Jackson. And after the first the day of rehearsal, I said, uh, Mr. Jackson, uh, the thing about television commentators is, with all due respect, uh, you guys uh, uh, only tell us about things we can see. I mean, you know, guys that know golf, we we watch things, and that's all you all you guys basically tell us. And he said, "Yeah, because we're here, we're out here all day long with rehearsals and production meetings, and we can't go out." And I said, "Well, I know a little something about it." And he said, "Well, what the commercials? Why don't you run down the tower?" And I'd go down and I'd ask players or caddies. So I'd come up, and Keith Jackson would be saying things that announcers had never said. He would say, like, Nicholas made uh, three birdies in a row on the on the front side, which no, no one had ever said in live time. This was 1967 or 68, 68 or 69. And I remember uh, uh, I heard that Watson had made a 60-foot a putt for an eagle at the ninth hole, which was before we were on the air. So Keith Jackson is saying, yeah, well, Watson made an eagle on the ninth hole. He made a 60-foot burger. And so in the production meeting, they, they said, Keith, how the hell do you know? I said, I got this kid who's a hustler. He goes up and down the the, the, the tower. I mean, I literally go up and down and finally go up there to him. And uh, 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 and Bud Palmer was the announcer who did not play golf and didn't know anything about golf. And he said, the producer, Chuck Howard, he said, oh, my God, this kid, I need, can I have this guy? And Keith. Said, yeah, yeah, you can have him. And that's where I got started. So when I, when I graduated from the University of Houston in June of 1970, I went back to Midland and did my laundry with my mom and, and dad and everything and flew to, to, to New York like two weeks after I graduated from high school and started as a production assistant. So I started early as a PA, and that's why I became a producer because Rune Arledge, the legendary producer of ABC Sports did play golf. None of the other production guys did. He, he was a member of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club and, and Wingfoot. So he would take me out to play golf at Wingfoot. Ooh. And we'd have a great time. We became friends. And he made me a producer for Wide World of Sports and all the Olympic Games starting when I was 22. Amazing story. Great stuff. So you've done the Super Bowl, Indy, PGA, Summer Winter Olympics. Which sports or events uh, are the most challenging to work on? I see he's got uh, right now for our listeners seven uh, seven Emmys that um, Terry's Terry's earned, and he was uh, nominated seventeen times. So incredible, incredible! He's like the goat of sports production here, along with of course Rune Arledge and some other folks. But great job! Um, so, which sporting events uh, stood out to you as uh, the most challenging and also the most satisfying to work on? Well, uh, I. I, I... I think the, uh, the the Super Bowl was great. I mean, it was great. And uh, and Rune, God love him, man, uh, always had the Olympic Games. ABC Sports had the Winter and Summer Olympic Games. And that is the pinnacle of athlete, a- athleticism in the world. You know, countries from all around the world send their best in the, in the Olympics. And, you know, uh, with, uh, with, with Jim McKay and... Uh, Christian Cole and these guys were great announcers and great guys. I think one of the great characteristics of an announcer is that they're your friend. 
You want to hang out with them. They're not just telling you a bunch of junk or their stats. They're, you're, you're hanging with them at a bar and you're, they're telling you stuff and they know a bunch of stuff and they want to share it with you. And uh, Jim McKay is the guy that wrote, you know, spanning the globe to bring a constant variety of sports, the thrill <laughs> of victory and the agony of defeat. This is ABC's wide world of sports. So it was about storytelling. And I just love that. I was drawn to that. And uh, and because of what I just told you, uh, I was I, I think I was the I was then I probably still am the youngest television network television producer ever. So what do you do, Terry, when you're uh, like you did the Super Bowl Super Bowl? I think it was uh, uh, 19, 19, I 19. Think. Yeah, 19. <laughs> and that was uh, 49ers blew out the Dolphins and the storyline was kind of Montana. The, you know, the yeah. old gunslinger against the new kid, uh, Marino and Marino got the Dolphins got blown out when you're from a production standpoint. What do you do to when you see the games of getting into a blowout and you've got to maintain the viewership and the Super Bowl is a special football game because yeah. it transcends the usual fans. What, what do you do as a producer when it's going on? You say, oh, no, this is a blowout. Um, I've got to do something to keep our uh, audience hooked. So how do you convey that to the announcers? How does your team uh, revise and tweak the storytelling? Okay, good question, Robert, and I'm very happy to answer it. Let me just uh, uh, say one thing for clarification, for authenticity here. An event like the Super Bowl has a number of producers and a number of directors. Okay, there's a lot going on. The producer was Bob Goodrich, good guy from Dallas, Texas, you know, who used to be, my, I gave him his first job and he did a lot of things for me and he jumped up the thing. Finally, he's, he's the producer of, of uh, Monday Night Football and ABC's professional football. And the, the, the season director, his name is Craig Janoff, because basically I did college football. But for the Super Bowl, Bob Goodrich and, and uh, Craig Jan asked me to come and be the co-director of it. Um, but uh, uh, it, I think it's, it takes a, a lot of study uh, and because uh, you have to know tendencies. Uh, and then um, it's, it's just a question of this instinct because, you know, often uh, if you have to wait and see things happen, see something that happens in the camera and say, take two, and the TD punches the tap up on the camera, you've missed it. So it's a, you have to kind of sense things are happening, be knowledgeable enough to know where to go, and experienced enough to know to what can happen, and then you got to get lucky. <laughs> um, sim similar situation, but very different. Um, the Olympics, you've got yeah. all these events happening over a period, yeah. course of a couple of weeks. As a yes. producer, behind the scenes, how do you determine, okay, Chinese badminton versus a yes. Yugoslav, you know, Bulgarian hockey game. Uh, you've got so much going on. And a lot of times the events aren't being broadcast in real time. They're taped or whatever, but it doesn't matter. The, it's, I think it's an art to be able to juggle all that stuff. I, can, I, have to, I have to think that would be very tough to really put together a great storytelling uh, when you're dealing with something with so many moving parts as the Olympics. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I, first of all, uh, to, to be clear about this, uh, uh, Rune Arledge was the executive president of ABC Sports and executive producer. And so, especially for the Olympics, I mean, he would be at the Super Bowls. He would be at the big college football games, the U.S. Open golf. Rune would come out. But when it came to the Olympics, he was the guy. 
He was the the executive producer. He sat in the control room with you know, uh, you know, forty or fifty monitors up there in front of him of of all coverage from all the Olympic venues with people feeding him information. And this is this his this is his genius, his intelligence. So there's only a few people can do it. Guys like me were out directing track and field or boxing or we'll get to Cosell in a while, right? But, uh, uh, you know, it's just a guy who's really knowledgeable uh, and has a sense about what the audience wants to see because that's where the game is. Rune's a showman. These guys who are really good, they're, they're Cecil B. DeMille of their time. They're, they, they know what the people want. They know emotionally. They know statistically where the audience is because they need to get the ratings up. Sponsors pay more. That's the game. And he was the king at it. I know there were good guys at NBC, NBC and CBS and Fox. Uh, all due respect. But for me, I mean, I'm an, I'm an ABC sports guy, which doesn't even exist anymore, right? Because it's now ESPN. Room was a genius. Uh, uh, but he was, he was smart and he had a lot of information to him. Sorry to be redundant. No, no, no. no. Uh, excellent answer. Play-by-play announcers. You yeah. worked with the cream of the crop and the top ones and all kinds of superstars, including, I think you mentioned uh, in our talks that uh, you, you know Al Michaels. You worked with oh, Howard yeah. Cosell a lot. So tell us yeah. about a little bit about working with yeah. these announcers and how do you, you have to do a little bit of wrangling when you're working with them, but you have to be yeah. respectful because they're superstars in their own, uh, you know, in their own game, if you will. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about Al Michaels for a moment, okay? And yeah. then I'll answer the question. Al Michaels is, he is amazing. He is a one-off for sure. First of all, he's, he's very playful. Um, he loved to play tennis and he's not, he's not the most physically fit guy you've ever seen. I mean, he's fine, but he was a really good tennis player and smart. And I play tennis too, but, uh, you know, I like, I play a lot of other things and he would pound on me to play tennis. We started playing a lot of tennis and I finally said, Alan, you're killing me with this tennis. And we started him to play golf. And we, he, he started to play golf and it was a lot of fun. But uh, uh, I think there is a, there's, a, there's a common bond between uh, the announcer and the producer because they really are a team together. Uh, and and at, at some point, um, you, have, you have to allow them the room to uh, interject their own uh, view of it, their own poetry to it. Because if it's all stats, facts, stats, facts, it becomes too dry. And there's not, there's not, there's not the poetry or the the, the narration that that belongs. And I'm sorry to say, and I won't mention, but there's a lot of announcers who are like really good um uh, sort of uh at the nuts and bolts, they 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 give you the facts, but there's no poetry to it. It's those guys that can give you the facts and the details for sure. They're great storytellers as well. Did I answer your, that question? Yeah, yes, yes, you did. You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking when you were saying that, because uh, in Monday Night Football, you had three guys in the, I have a beef with my friends. So let me tell you a quick story. So yeah. Monday Night Football, you had you had Don Meredith and you had Howard Cosell and you and had Frank, Frank Gifford. Gifford. And it was we'll nice start. because they were having fun and it wasn't... Yeah. Now I watch Monday Night Football and they got they still have the three guys in the booth. And it's like, please, some silence. 
If one guy is second, he finishes talking, the other guy's on top of it, and the next guy's on top of it and goes back. It's like a fight for airtime. I just turned the sound down. I, I, I tried the Manning thing and like, okay, I, I, I applaud them for doing something new, but I, I just, I, I need a little air when I'm watching TV and maybe that's a sign of my age, but it's no, like, no. I don't want to be assaulted here. Just like, let me enjoy the game a little bit. Yeah, Thoughts? I tot- totally agree with you, Robert. You have to let every story... You have to let it breathe. And I think a lot of these guys, and even the, the NFL playoffs now, I'm, I'm sitting in there and I'm like, <laughs> I wish these guys would just shut up because <laughs> you got the play-by-play guy and the expert commentator, and they're just carrying on a bunch of conversation that is parenthetical off to it. They don't understand the importance of silence because why, among other things, it engages the audience. I, you know, I'm sorry. I, 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 I was blessed with learning from great announcers, so I didn't have to do that. I learned what I knew at the foot of Rune, but also working with, with great announcers. But I'm with you. It drives me crazy. And you should I, you and I should plead right now that these guys <laughs> shut up a little bit and let the game speak for itself. Okay. Robert. All right. We got time for one quick Howard Cosell yeah, story, them, and then we got to wrap don't, it. Don't don't give them my email address, though, those guys. <laughs> oh, my God. One story. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Oh, there's or so just many. An in, just an insight. Muhammad Anything. Yeah. Uh, Muhammad Ali stories and and, and Kurt, Kurt Flood. Oh, my God. I don't even know. Um, I, 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 well, I'll, I'll give you. I, I will tell you a story that hardly anybody knows. Howard, uh, uh, during during his career, uh, there was a, a radio station in Kansas City that uh, had a campaign for the most hated person in America, if I'm getting my facts right. And the person who was voted the most hated person in America was Howard Cosell. <laughs> it was, it, you know, it's a bit of a, you can imagine, it was, there's plenty of people that love him. So we were doing a, a boxing event for Wide World of Sports in London the next week. Howard and his wife, Emmy, and I were there. And we were sitting there uh, one day, and there was, a mo- there was a play on called The Mousetrap, which was the longest-running theatrical play in the world ever. It was like, I don't know, years in some theater in London. And we didn't have anything to do. And uh, and and Emmy, Howard's wife, said, let's go see the mousetrap. So we, we, we got tickets and we went there and we sat down with these really good sticks in the center. And before the, the just before the curtain went up and lights went, the guy turned around, the, the guy from the row sitting in front of us turned around and said, Howard Cosell. Wow, it's fun you're here. I, I, I'm from Kansas City and a radio station just uh, voted the, the most hated guy in America and you won. You, you, <laughs> you, you, you were thinking Howard would like that? He was so devastated. He, he didn't, he could hardly, he did. And the minute the first act was over, because I know he wanted to go and his wife, Amy, said, we'd have to walk out of the middle of the aisle and walk. So, but the second the first thing was over, uh, the first uh, 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 act was over, we got up and walked up when Amy had about six vodkas in a row because he <laughs> felt like everybody thought everybody loved him. But so that that's amazing. How it was. amazing. Well, great stories. Funny. 
you got an amazing career. And I love the fact that you, you did the training um, because I think storytelling is, is everything. Like you trained as an actor, you trained as a writer, you acted, you taught acting, you trained with, and you learned from Lee Strasberg. And then you integrated that into all of your work across sports, across creating novels, plays, scripts for TV, movies, features, just really well done. And uh, it's just an absolute honor and pleasure talking with you. And uh, the book, once again, it's called Can The I Trial. Absolutely. My publisher would kill me if I didn't do this. Can okay. you see it? You can, we got it. The Trial of George, George W. Bush. Terry Gastro, winner of seven Emmy Awards on Guys Guys Radio. Terry, you're welcome back for any of your other projects. We'll do it again. I had a blast. Thank you so much. Okay. Peace, brother. All right. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, provocative show, provocative interview with my guest, Terry Jastrow. Provocative title to his novel. Again, it's a novel. It's about a what-if situation. If our leaders and leaders around the world could be held accountable for some of their decisions. The name of the book, once again, is The Trial of George W. Bush. So what did we learn? Well, beyond... um, what I talked about in our opening about um, all the issues around the politics of the Iraq war and the expenditures and the lives lost and all of that, uh, I guess we have to ask ourselves, do we give our leaders the benefit of the doubt when it comes to making these life and death decisions for the country? Because again, we don't know all of everything that's going on underneath and behind the scenes. So you ask yourself, do we want to give them the benefit of the doubt? Or not? Or do we want to ask more questions? And in the court of public opinion, what is your decision about what went on in the Iraq war? And is George Bush accountable for some of those decisions that he made or not? That's up to you to decide. Guys, Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. The podcast and YouTube post worldwide every Thursday. You know, Guys Guys Radio is now on in over 100 markets around the world, 100 countries actually around the world. So every place from France to, to Spain to Canada to Australia to Uganda, you can listen to Guys Guys Radio. So thank you for your support. You can also check me out all over social media. I'm on Facebook, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and my website is robertmanny, M-A-N-N-I.com. I've got over 300 blog posts about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, so many different topics. It's all free for you, and you can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is the source material for everything Guy's Guy. And it's all about men. It's all about evolving men. It's about flawed men. It's about redemption. It's about love, sex, power, and money. It's about savvy women. It's about friendship. It's about sex. Did I say that already? And it's a, it's a romp. And it's been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City. So it's a fast-paced, frothy novel. It's a lot of fun but it's about something. So Guys Guys Radio uh, presents The Guys Guys Guide to Love is my novel. So if you want to pick it up, it's on Amazon and wherever else you buy your books. 
uh, online. Um, you can get the physical copy or you can get an ebook. So thank you for your support. If you enjoy the guests I bring you each and every week to the show and also the content, I would ask you one favor, and it doesn't cost a penny. It's please subscribe, one, to my YouTube channel. Just go to Robert Manny on YouTube. All of our interviews are posted on YouTube. Uh, the whole show is on KCAA and the podcast, of course, right here, what we're doing. And um, if, you if you really support us also, you can subscribe to uh, Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast because we're, we're everywhere that your podcasts are consumed. That's where we are. So there's no excuse not to be able to find us because we're everywhere. And I hope you'll just take a moment or two and just subscribe on YouTube. Makes a difference. Uh, we're growing rapidly in the, that channel. We just opened up uh, just about a year ago. So we're going pretty quickly now. It got slow start, of course, and then faster and faster and faster. And we're doing great. So thank you for su your support. I also want to thank my producer and wish her a happy birthday, Chris Marcello. Thank you, Chris. Great job as always. Um, I want to thank all my guests. We're approaching the 500th show. I've got some special guests coming up uh, in the first couple of interviews and shows, uh, starting with number 500. You're really going to have a good time, and you'll recognize these folks. And then we've got a lot more planned for this coming year as we grow and grow and grow on Guys Guys Radio. So thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you all my listeners out there and viewers, because it's so it means so much to know that we're affecting people and people are saying, hey, good interview. Wow, I learned a lot. That's pretty cool. And even if you don't agree with some of the content or some of the guests and their positions of what they have to say, but you know, they may be introducing new modalities, new ways of thought, new thinking, new ideas, new concepts. And the goal is to help us think and help us maybe make some decisions to uh, change our lives a little bit for the best. So that's what we do here on Guys Guys Radio. And I thank you once again as we approach our five from the show in a couple of weeks. And I can't wait to get there and beyond. So Guys Guys Radio, I'm going to see you next week. And as I always like to say, Guys Guys, finish first. <laughs>